Morning, everyone. Well, it's good to be back in Woodstock every once in a while. My wife and I find ourselves in your town, and we're um, glad to be back here this morning and to share God's word with you. I don't know what you've been told about who I am or anything, but uh, I'm not sure who follows who around, whether it's the boys who follow us around or we who follow them around. But uh, maybe we'll see each other from time to time because we have been in each other's lives for over 40 years. And so we go back a ways. But it's good to be back in Woodstock and to have this opportunity of being able to share God's word with you this morning. It's the first time it's ever been for me that I've been the opening act to somebody's ministry uh, for a, a lengthy period of time. So that's how I feel this morning about this opportunity of being able to be here before George's ministry begins to you. Before we get into God's word, I just would like to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who communicates. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who communicates within our hearts. We thank you for your word that you have preserved through the centuries. And we have it today to look into for the guidance that we need as individuals, but also as a church. Father, we thank you for your love for the church and your love for this congregation of people. And Lord, we just want to thank you for the opportunity this morning and the freedom that we enjoy to be able to dig into it and to see what you have to say to us as we seek to be your people in this community. And so, Father, we just thank you for this opportunity this morning to be able to look at your word and pray that the Holy Spirit would be the one who would be our teacher. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's hard to believe for my wife and I that it was 30 years ago that we moved away from Woodstock after having been here for six years. But as travels have brought us back into this community from time to time, one of the things that always strikes us, and that is the fact that Woodstock is a changing place with the new communities that, especially to the north, it's impressive. And here are you this morning on the verge of change as you introduce a new uh, pastor to the congregation and to the city. Not new to Woodstock, of course, as you know, but new to this responsibility. Whenever a church brings in a new pastor or when they lose a pastor, uh, it's usually a time for reflection and a time for evaluation, a time that where a church takes stock in itself. Where are we now and where do we need to be going? Where should we be aiming for in the future? And asking ourselves the question, just how effective have we been and just how effective are we in the job that God has given to us? And so with that in mind this morning, what I would like to do is to spend a few moments with you in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Here's what the Apostle Paul shares with us that we need to be doing even in the 21st century. 
in order to build a church, not just a church, but as the slide will show you, an effective church. We just don't want to be playing church. We want to be as effective as we possibly can be and do the things that God is asking us to do. It is not our job to do, to build big churches. It is not our job to build famous churches. That's not what God is ultimately interested in. What he's ultimately interested in is that we be effective for him, doing the things that he has put us in this community to do, being the people that he wants us to be so that we can impact not only Woodstock and Oxford County, but even beyond that. I remember vividly the day 50 years ago when this passage of Scripture came alive for me. And through the years, it has continued to inform me and to shape me as I have done pastoral ministry in a number of churches throughout southern Ontario. And whenever a new pastor comes to a church, one of the first things that he is presented with is a job description. And I assume that you had one of those things given to you. And here are all your expectations. Here's all the things we expect you to do. Well, what I'm doing is turning a table on you this morning because what we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is God's job description for us as we seek to serve him in a community such as this. What I would like us to do this morning is to look at what is involved in building a church, not the brick-and-mortar stuff, not the edifice stuff, but the spiritual aspect of the building of a church. As uh, your pastor's already said this morning, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians was written to a local church, and it was written about local church matters. And when you read Paul's letter to the Corinthians, right away you are told that there is something drastically wrong with this congregation of people. Not just one thing, but a number of things. But the first thing that he mentions is their immaturity. They've been Christians for a while, but they were not growing, and in fact, they seem to be regressing. In verse 4, Paul talks about one of the problems that showed their immaturity. What they were doing was one group of people within the church was saying, we follow Apollos, that famous preacher of that day, effective preacher for God. We are of his camp. And others were saying, we belong to the Apostle Paul. He's the one that we follow. And so you had this clash. You had this division within the church. Rather than following Jesus Christ, what they were doing was following a particular man. And according to verse 3, this was creating some jealousy and contention, division, hard feelings within the church. And so you had division taking place. And as Paul addresses this problem, what he does is set out some important principles that we can apply today to building a strong, effective healthy church for God. Now, as we look into this passage of Scripture, I realize what we're going to do, what I'm going to be doing is mixing my metaphors. 
But I have good reason for doing that because the Apostle Paul does it, so I can do it too. And any of you English uh, students, uh, don't get mad at me. You get mad at the Apostle Paul. In verses 5 through 9, Paul likens the church to a field where seeds are planted and they're watered and they grow and they are reaped. And then he suddenly switches at the end of verse 9 and he talks about the church being like a building. So let me read what verse 9 says. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field You are God's building. Now, whether it's a field or whether it's a building, the point that Paul is making here in this passage is each of us who are a part of the church are merely servants carrying out the task that has been assigned to us by our master. We may have different roles. We may have different abilities. But none of us are more special than the other person. We need to have the attitude, the spirit of the Roman centurion that you remember came to Jesus on one occasion. He came to him because his servant was sick. And in the course of the conversation with Jesus, here's what this Roman centurion, this Gentile, said. He said, I also, I too am a man under authority. Here's a man who's in charge of Troops, But he says of himself, I'm a man under authority, not in authority, but under authority. And he, as he looks at Jesus, also recognizes that fact. And he and what he says, recognize the fact that Jesus was also a man under authority, under the authority of his father. And this is how we are to see ourselves. We are people not in authority. We are people under authority. We are merely servants. And whether you're the pastor, whether an elder, a deacon, whether you are over a particular ministry or whatever role you serve in, you do it with a servant spirit. Not in a, an authoritarian manner showing off your superiority. I'm the one that's in charge here. You do what I say. That has no room in the church, is what the Apostle Paul is saying. And we need to continue to remember Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where he said, I will build my church. Jesus Christ is the one who's in control. This is his church. He's the one who calls the shots. And as servants, we are responsible to carry out the things that he's asking us to do. Whether it's told to us through his word or through the ministry of the Holy Spirit to our hearts. It wasn't all too long ago that uh, I would hear in church circles uh, from time to time people saying, what we need is the people to take ownership of this ministry or this program within the church. God forbid that that ever happen because that only leads to the attitude of possessiveness and ownership. 
And when that subtly creeps in and can creep into a church where people are saying, well, this is my ministry, this is my responsibility, the only thing that will happen will be trouble. And that's not what you want. God requires an attitude of selflessness, of obedience, and of servitude from us. Now, I've known George and Cynthia Boyd a long time, a long, long time. And I know that one of the outstanding qualities that they possess, and that is a servant heart. My wife and I have seen this displayed many times and in many different kinds of situations. And my exhortation to both George and Cynthia is this, that you model this attitude, that you not set it aside, but that you only increase in your uh, spirit of servitude. And to you as a congregation, the words of the Apostle Paul as he wrote to the Philippians, where he said, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. May you be known throughout Oxford County as a church with a servant spirit. That's the first thing that Paul lays out for these people in the city of Corinth. There's a second point that we can learn from this passage of Scripture. And that is this. Paul, in talking about himself and his friend Apollos, makes the point that he and Apollos are co-workers in God's servant service. And as a result of that, they are complementing each other. Again, look at verse 9 where he says, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. We are working together, he says, concerning himself and Apollos. We're not competitors. The people of Corinth were making rivals out of these men, and they were trying to split the relationship between Paul and Apollos because of that. And what they were doing as a result of that was hurting the effectiveness of that church in Corinth. Turn over to the first chapter of uh, Corinthians, and verses 10 through 13. And hear what Paul says as he begins this book. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some of you have uh, may be uh, perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some of Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And then there were the super spiritual ones who said, oh, well, we're not, we, that's beneath us. We follow Christ. Well, they really weren't in the attitude that they should have. And so Paul writes these people to set the record straight. They are one in ministry together. There was a spirit of cooperation between Paul and 
uh, Apollos. And the result of that was that the ministry of the gospel was going forth throughout the Mediterranean world at that time in an amazing way. And the church was growing. The church was healthy. Now, if you go back to chapter 3 and look at verse 10, there you find Paul turning the spotlight away from himself and Apollos and turning the spotlight on these people. And there he says to them, he says, Now, in the light of what I just said in verse 9, I let every one of you take care how you build. And Paul had a number of things probably in his mind when he gave them this command. And I believe one of those things was, Now, you too, there in Corinth, you need to be cooperating with one another as well. But notice something else that he says. He says there, let each one be careful how you build. And Paul is letting all of us know that we have a responsibility. Everyone who is a part of this fellowship has a responsibility to one another and to the ministry that you are seeking to to do here in this community. Now, I'm sure that most of you, if not all of you, at some point in your life have played sidewalk superintendent. I'm playing that role right now because where we live, right behind us, square behind us, they're working on a foundation of a 10-story senior citizen's apartment. And it's of interest to me to just see how they're getting along every day, what they're doing today, and what they're doing tomorrow, and so forth. But I'm just an interested spectator. That's not what God is calling us. That's not what Paul is calling these people. He's not calling them interested spectators. He's asking them to serve, to be part, an active part of what's going on in the life of the church. He's calling every Christian, a fellow worker, to be involved in what goes on. In the local church. If you're a Christian, God has a job for you, a gifting with which to do it, and a place here in which to serve. And he's asking you to do that, not just today as you welcome in your new pastor in the next weeks or, or a short period of time, but this is to be carried on constantly right through the history of this church that you work in harmony and unity with one another. And with the, the Boyds now on board, now is not the time to slack off. Typically what happens when a, a pastor leaves a church, uh, people start to come out of the work, woodwork to take various responsibilities that the pastor carried on. And the work continues, and obviously it has continued over the last number of months that you have been without a pastor. But when the new pastor comes, responsibilities get shifted to him. Uh, maybe not necessarily right away, but over time. And what I found is moving into a new church is you have a clean desk in some respects. 
And over time, you just find that one more responsibility that somebody else was carrying on gets left on your desk, and before you know it, you're under a pile. And um, what I am asking you to do as you welcome in the Boyds, don't do that. Tasks that you're doing now, do them faithfully and not look for some way that I can get out of doing what I'm doing. We all have a responsibility is what Paul is saying. And I trust that what will happen here is that you will prove Mr. Pareto wrong. You know, the Pareto principle is this, that 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. And that 80% of the people do 20% of the work. Now, I trust that won't happen here and never will happen here. But it will be 80% of the people doing 80% of the work. Or maybe 100% of the people doing 100% of the work. That would even be better. What I'm saying is as you start a new chapter in the history of this church, Now is the time for all hands on deck and everyone to be involved cooperatively in the ministry that God has called you to perform here in the city of Woodstock, county of Oxford. There's a third principle that we draw from this passage of scripture this morning. And it's found in verses 10 and 11. Let me read them for you. Paul says, by the grace of God given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. And someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. No one can lay a foundation other than what is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. The foundation, says the Apostle Paul, has already been laid for this church spiritually, and it's the person of the Lord Jesus. But the question that comes that I need to ask, and it's this, are you building on Jesus Christ? It seems from what the Apostle Paul writes in the first two chapters of this letter that the Corinthians were being influenced by the philosophers of their day, by the so-called wisdom of their day. And as a result, they were questioning the significance of Jesus Christ. They were uh, also um, questioning the importance of his death and the veracity of the fact that he is raised from the dead. And sad to say that that spirit has continued down through the centuries at times where churches have been doing church, but nothing has been uh, accomplished because they have shunted Jesus Christ to the side. That even happened in the first century, because when you go to the second chapter of the book of Revelation, you have the story of the church in Ephesus. And there, they are commended by the Lord Jesus. They're commended for their perseverance, their endurance in the face of hardship, their hatred of false teaching. But then he says this, here is the problem that I have with you. I hold this against you because you have forsaken your first love. Their love for the Lord Jesus had grown cold. 
he was no longer central to that which they were doing. The focus was no longer in him. And a casualness towards the relationship with Jesus Christ had set in. He was no longer the foundation on which the church was being built. In our day, it's very easy for churches to become man-centered. Increasingly, we are living in a secular world, and secularism, to put it in simplest terms, is the worship of man, the worship of self. And it's easy for a church to be drawn into that vortex and to become all about man, all about what we want, what we need. It's easy not to become Christ-centered. It's easy to become personality-centered. And that's what was happening in Corinth. It's easy to become an issue-oriented church or a problem-focused church or a program-driven church. And in doing so, we can ease Jesus Christ to the sidelines. It's important for us to remember Paul's words to the Corinthians that he gave in chapter 1, verse 22. He said, we preach Christ crucified, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus Christ must be central to our messaging, our preaching, our teaching, our music, our outreach. And whatever we do, he must have the primary focus. Whether it's in our own lives or in the life of this church, he must be central. Central in our conduct, our lifestyle, our attitudes, and our relationships. Here's what Paul wrote to the Colossians. He said in verse 18 and 19 of chapter 1, he said, And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Want to be an effective church for God in this community? Make sure that Jesus Christ always, always has the supremacy in your life and in your church, your fellowship. I see you have the same problem in your church that I have in mine. And that is the hands on that clock go around too fast. But fear not, little flock. I can see the clock. That brings us to our fourth point that we find in this passage, and that's in verse 10, where the Apostle Paul says, let each one be careful how he builds. That not only means that we are to be careful which foundation we're building on, but it also means that we need to be careful the materials with which we are building. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, if any man builds on the foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, or wood, hay, and stubble, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. 
The Corinthians knew what the Apostle Paul was talking about because in the year 146 B.C., their city was attacked by the Roman army, and they showed some resistance to the Roman army coming in and taking over. And the Roman army responded by sacking the city and then torching it so that it was completely destroyed. All that was left was that which was stone, metal, and jewelry. Everything combustible was gone. And so what is the point that Paul is making here? He says, as we do our part in the building, the spiritual building of the local church, we're faced with a choice. We can build a seemingly impressive church by using questionable motives or methods, shady tactics. We can cut corners and everything still looks pretty good from the outside. And we can use all of the psychological tricks that are being played. We can play the crowd. We can appeal to the crowd. And again, that would mean shifting our message to being man-focused rather than Christ-focused. And we can have outwardly what seems to be success. But in time, the cracks will appear. And eventually, God's work will crumble. So what did Paul have in mind when he talked about using quality materials? That which will last. Well, let me give you just one example. As he talks about some of the qualities in this book, he talks in chapter 13, as you know, about the matter of love. That's one of the qualities that we need to be building with. And you know this passage well. In it, Paul says, as he describes what love is, he says that love is patient with people. It's constructive. It's not destructive. It's not possessive, rather, it's selfless. It's not trying to impress people, but rather is humble. It's mannerly, not hypersensitive. It doesn't harbor grudges against others, but rather cares for people. That's just one example of the kinds of material that we are to use to build this church. And so what God is asking for from you as you seek to serve him in this community is that you give to God your very best. All too often what we do is give God the leavings of our life, the leftover time, the leftover energy, the leftover resources that we have. God is not asking for the scraps of our life. But rather, he's asking for the best of our time, the best of our talents, the best of our uh, thought life, the best of our talents. This was the way it was in the Old Testament when God asked his people to bring to him the things that they could bring to him. He asked for the best of their flocks, the best of their crops. And that's what he asks from us, is our best. And I think we might say to ourselves, well, that's rather costly. That's that's really going to cost me a lot. Well, as we will move on in just a moment, we'll see in verse, verse 14 that God says that he will reward us for what we do for him and what we bring to him.
And as, as we do that, we need to remember what Mark 10, verses 29 and 30 say. There he, uh, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or, <coughs> or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. A hundred times. What kind of a percentage is that? Well, when you work it out, he's saying that God is going to reward us 10,000%. Now, who pays that kind of interest today? You're lucky to get 1% or 2%. God promises to reward us and to pay us because he is no man's debtor. And so the last thing that I just want to highlight in closing, and that is, as we build, we need to build anticipating a final inspection. If you buy a new home, have somebody build a new home for you, you know that the last thing before you get your keys from the lawyer is that there is a final inspection. And then everything is okay, and you can move in. And what this passage is telling us, there will be a final inspection for you and for me. As we stand before God, again, we look at verse 12 of this passage. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stone, stones, wood, hay, or stubble, his work will be shown for what it is because of the quality of each man's work. If they built, if what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. It's the quality of our work that will be judged, not the amount of it, how big we have accomplished things, how many things we have done, but it's going to be the quality of what we have done that is going to be judged. People may be impressed with all of the things that we have done, the external things, but God sees beyond all of that. And he is not going to give us that pat on the back if what we have been doing is building with the wrong materials, though it looks nice. I'm reminded of a young man who married the daughter of a well-known, well-respected contractor. And after the marriage, the father-in-law said to the son-in-law, he said, I want you to come into the business. I'm going to teach you everything I know. And so he did. He went to work for his father-in-law. And after a period of time, he came to the point where he knew the business inside out. And when that happened, the father-in-law came to the son-in-law and said, "Uh, what I want you to do is Uh, I've got a project for you to take. I'm going off with my wife. We're going to have a lengthy vacation, and we're going to do some traveling, and we won't be back for quite a while. So I want you to take these plans and build this house on this particular lot. And here is a very liberal amount of money that uh, you can draw from. 
to build this house. So the, the, the parents leave. He's now in charge. And so rather than building the, the best building that he could, what he decided was, well, with all of this money, I can live the high life instead. And so what he did, he built the house, but he used the cheapest materials that he could find. He cut corners as best he could, and eventually the house was built. Not the way the father-in-law would have wanted it built, but he built that house. And from the outside, it looked good. Father-in-law finally came home, and when he did, he asked the son-in-law if he could see the house. Son-in-law took him through, and he was nodding and pleased with what he saw. And at the end of the tour of the house, as they were stepping out the front door, the father-in-law took the keys and he handed them back to his son-in-law and said, this house is yours. What he had done was he had, in the end, cheated himself. He had cheated his father-in-law and he had also cheated himself. And that's what we have to ask ourselves from time to time. And I'm asking you to do that now. Have I been cheating God? Have I been giving him less than what he deserves? Because if you have been, you are also cheating yourself. My admonition to you this morning is don't cheat yourself. And don't shortchange God either. So as you move into the future as pastor and people, as you serve with one another, as you serve one another, as you minister to this community, as you reach out into our province, and as you reach beyond the borders of our country. May your ministry be marked by a servant spirit, a cooperative mindset, a focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, a giving of your best to him, and serve with the expectation of someday hearing his words, well done, good and faithful servant. May God bless you as you labor together, and I'm expecting to hear great things being accomplished at the rock and through the rock. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that at this time you would seal these words to our hearts and that this passage of Scripture might continue to inform this congregation in the days to come. Lord, we pray that these things that we have wished for them would be accomplished in the days to come. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.